So we are in Psalm 93 tonight. Um, before we go ahead and dive into the text, I'd like to open us uh, in a time of prayer so we can ask for the Lord's wisdom as we uh, go through this text together. So if you would join me in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word for us. We thank you that uh, you still speak today, uh, that you speak uh, the same words you have always spoken, you, uh, you have passed down from ages past through your prophets, through your writings, through your teachings, uh, down to us, Lord. And so we pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you have for us this evening. Uh, I pray that we would be sensitive uh, to what you have for us. I pray that we would be open and we would, uh, with our minds, uh, bring those to the table to worship you. And with our hearts, bring those to the table to worship you. And Lord, with our whole bodies, uh, we would engage in worship. And I pray all these things in your name. Amen. So, one of the uh, most beautiful aspects of this psalm uh, is kind of the, the refraining title that the Lord reigns. And we, we've talked about this before, so I'll only mention this briefly. In your Bibles in the English translation, uh, the word Lord should be all caps. It should be capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And there's two different words that you can use for the word Lord. One is the word Adonai, which refers to a ruler or a king. And the other one, Lord, which is trying to be denoted here, is Yahweh, which is the covenant name of God. And so in our English, we use both the word Lord to translate both of those Hebrew terms. But Yahweh is different than Adonai. To be Adonai is to be a ruler or a master over someone. To be Yahweh is to be the covenant God of Israel. And so they denote different things. So when it says here that the Lord reigns, it's not making a double statement about the ruler rules over things. What it's saying is that Yahweh is the one who is Lord. Yahweh is the one who reigns. And one of the most beautiful aspects of Christianity is the, the beauty of the power and the magnificence of God. How much power he brings to the table, how much power we can't even talk about. We, we try to describe his power and his everlasting nature and his creative power, and words typically tend to fall short, and we end up having to talk about him in terms of what we can understand and reason with, but really all of those things fall short of God. In the last few psalms that we've been going through, we've looked at a few of the different attributes of God. So we've looked at his goodness when we were in Psalm 34. We looked at his steadfast love in Psalm 42 and 43. And then last week, we looked at his refuge and his protection over us, and that was in Psalm 62. And this week, we're going to be talking about a different attribute of God, personally one of my favorites, which is the sovereignty of God. This is one of the attributes that's probably the most contentious attribute of God, in that there are many people who have questions about how it plays out in our lives, many people who have questions about what actually is implied with the sovereignty of God. And our world has been really in rebellion against the sovereignty of God ever since the fall. And ever since the fall, when the initial serpent tested Eve and he questioned her, half God said, and tested whether God really meant what he said and that he was going to do what he said he was going to do, that was an attack on the integrity and ultimately the sovereignty of God to be able to do what he said he was going to do, to be able to rule how he said he was going to rule. So as we go through this psalm, we're going to see how this is spelled out. And this psalm is actually framing the Lord ruling and reigning over his creation, sovereignly ruling and reigning. And it's painting it as a good thing that this happens. And so I want to lay out for you how this is a good thing. But we want to talk about how the Lord reigns. And so I have like just three headings for you as we work through this text together. So the first is that we will see that the Lord reigns eternally. So that's in the first stanza, verses 1 and 2, the Lord reigns eternally. The second is that the Lord reigns over the floods, or if you have the NIV, over the seas. And then the last stanza really talks about how, the, how exactly the Lord reigns, which is that the Lord reigns through his word. And that's what we're going to see in the last stanza. So I hope you have your Bibles open in front of you. If you do not have a Bible out, I highly recommend it because we will be turning to all different texts of Scripture today. Um, and we're going to be diving into this text, what David is uh, getting at. If, we, if it is David, we don't actually know who it is. Um, but we're going to be getting at what it is that the Lord reigns over, how he reigns, and why that's a good thing. So let's first look at the first stanza, which is that the Lord reigns eternally. And you'll see that with me in verse 1 of the text. It says that the Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. So here in the opening lines of the psalm, 
we have the author making a specific truth claim about who God is. And if you know anything about truth claims, you know that in today's world, there are many different avenues in which you can get to truth. There can be so-and-so's truth claim and this truth claim and that truth claim. And in what's called a postmodern understanding of the world, we would say that all truth claims could be potentially true as applied to individual people. Now, this psalm doesn't leave room for something like that. This psalm only leaves room for one truth claim, which is that the Lord reigns. And he doesn't caveat that by saying the Lord reigns over me or the Lord reigns as my personal God. Right now, he's making the claim that the Lord reigns, no caveat, no modifying statement, which leaves the implication that the Lord reigns over everything, that the Lord reigns over all of his creation, over all the peoples on the earth, over all things in heaven and below the earth and under the earth. So here we have the Lord reigning. That's a truth claim. And he makes two uh, examples or two pieces of evidence that he submits as to how we can know that it is the Lord who reigns. So the first thing he says is that he is robed in majesty. That's the first line right after that. It says, the Lord reigns, he is robed in majesty. Now, one of the things you would expect of someone who rules and reigns over things is that they would have the garb or the adornment of someone who rules and who reigns, right? Ancient pharaohs would have specific headdresses that they would wear. They would have that fake beard that they would put on. They would build gigantic pyramids in honor of them, their own name. And they would set themselves apart from the rest of their people as someone who rules and who reigns. In fact, even Jesus, when he is being held on trial, the Roman soldiers in mockery of him put on a robe over him in order to mock the fact that he claims to rule and to reign. And so they seek to, through his appearance, make fun of the fact that he claims to actually be king. Psalm 104 verse 1 puts it this way. It says that you, referring to the Lord, are clothed with splendor and with majesty. And so the thing that clothes the one who rules is something that indicates what he is like. And when we're talking about God, that doesn't actually mean he has a physical cloak on or that he's actually robed in something. What it's saying is that when you were to, if you were to somehow look at God and not die, what you would see is full, majestic glory and beauty. That's what you would see when you look at God. And when we have visions of people seeing God in the temple, seeing God uh, as they're caught up into the heavens, seeing him, you have this consistent type of language saying he is clothed in glory, he is clothed in splendor, he is clothed in light. So this talks about what you would see if you were somehow to look at God. And the second statement or the second evidence that he submits as to how we can know that the Lord reigns is he says, the Lord is robed. And in that second line, it says, he has put on strength as his belt. And so the second way you can know who's in charge or who's in control is who has the strength to actually carry out their rule and their reign. It does no good to be a king in name only. You see, the British royal government has a system where they have monarchs, but we know that ever since uh, modern time has come to pass, those monarchs actually don't have much ruling authority. They can't actually do many things. In fact, in Britain, it's really the prime minister and their cabinet that makes the decision. But the monarch is there really in name only, more as like a show puppet, as opposed to someone who effectually rules and who reigns. And we're not to understand God as a ruler who is adorned in majesty, but actually doesn't have the power to carry things out. He's both one who has a majestic rule, he has full glory on display, and also he has the power to carry out his rule and his reign. So we get both pieces of evidence, that he has both the strength to carry out his rule and that he has the glory that is befitting of one who rules. So this picture of the Lord is one that shows us that he is clothed in both glory and in power. This is a consistent theme in all of the Old Testament and even going into the New Testament that the Hebrew God, Yahweh, is one who is more powerful than all the other gods in the pantheons. He's more powerful than all the Baals. He's more powerful than the gods of the Egyptians. He's more powerful than any of the gods of the Assyrians, of the Phoenicians. He's more powerful than any of those local deities. So he rules and reigns over them in strength and in the sense that he is more good and more just and more righteous than any of those other gods as well. As the ruler, these are things that support his initial claim to reign. So his strength and his glory and his majesty support his initial claim to be a ruler. And it needs to be said again, one cannot rule or reign unless they have the strength to do so, and also that their glory is befitting of their rule and their reign. 
And as I mentioned before, all the ancient rulers understood this to be true. You can think about the pharaohs who, as a display of their glory, as a display of their power, would enslave other people as they captured them. They do this to the Israelites after they have passed away for a few years. The, the old pharaoh dies. He loses his ties with Israel. And the new pharaoh says, I'm going to exert my power over the people to prove the kind of strength that I have by enslaving the people because I can. And they build gigantic pyramids to themselves, even pyramids that stand to this day that you can go and see. And these are attempts to show how glorious and how mighty and how majestic they were in their time. If you remember the story in Daniel, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, he builds a 90-foot tall statue of himself that people have to bow down to and worship. That was his attempt to make himself more glorious and more powerful. He's saying that I want to build a statue that shows off my glory, my splendor, and I have the power to make everyone else bow down to it, and if they don't, I'm going to exact some kind of a punishment or some vengeance on them. So this is Nebuchadnezzar trying to exert both his strength and his glory through this statue. And then also you have the Caesars in Jesus' time, who we read about try to deify themselves, right? We learned about Caesar Augustus, who tries to make himself like God. And he makes decrees saying that people have to worship him. In fact, they have to make sacrifices to him. It's so contentious even that the Jews were concerned about even paying tithes to the Roman government because they saw it as some kind of a manifestation of paying homage to this person who is claiming to be like God. And so all of these are gross human attempts to make that ruler more majestic, more honorable than they actually are in real life. But the reality is with God, God is very unlike these rulers in that no attempt at us making God great could actually even come close to the picture of his reality. Human rulers, when they magnify themselves, they make themselves more glorious than their, actu- than their reality. When we try to glorify God, we actually fall short still of the reality that is true. We always fall short of making God out to be as glorious as he says he is in his word. In fact, in the book of Hebrews, there are many different instances where the, the, the speaker goes about and talks about how when Moses built the tabernacle and the temple and they built all these glorious images, that these are just a copy and a shadow of, a div- of the divine things. He says that all of the jewelry and gold in Israel, all of the most fine craftsmanship that God has placed in the builders who were making that temple, he says that this is just a copy of the divine thing. This is merely a shadow or a dim representation of what the heavenly thing is like. He says that uh, he uses this argument to actually, uh, the author of Hebrews uses this argument to say how Jesus had to be the sacrifice because the old dim copies and shadows, they could be purified merely by the shedding of the blood of bulls and of goats. That these things can be purified and made holy with simply animal sacrifices. But the heavenly things, they require a more perfect sacrifice. That through the blood of bulls and goats, you can't actually purify the heavenly things because the earthly things are a copy, so they can be purified with a less than. But the heavenly things, they must be purified with a more perfect sacrifice. And so he uses this as a springboard to then talk about how Jesus is that fulfillment, that more perfect sacrifice. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1, the author writes that the law, in fact, is actually just a shadow, a dim representation of the heavenly realities. You can think about the glory of God. We read about it in scripture as a bright, majestic sun. It says his glory is so radiant that in heaven, there's not actually a sun that needs to be present, that his glory is actually the light that goes out through all the earth, that uh, it, it illuminates everything. And here on earth, what we see as the dim copies and the shadows of the divine things, they are merely a, a minuscule representation of God's glory. In fact, if you'll turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6, Uh, We're going to be in verses 1 and 3. Isaiah chapter 6, he talks about his encounter with God. And his description is very fitting of the glory of God. And this is just one of a few different descriptions that you can read about in Scripture of people who have the privilege and the opportunity to actually see the heavenly throne. In Isaiah chapter 6, starting in verse 1, it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim, 
Each had six wings, and with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another, these are the seraphim talking to themselves, and they are saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So this is Isaiah getting a glimpse at the heavenly throne room, and he says that he sees these creatures that you and I can't even imagine. These creatures are called the seraphim, which literally means the burning ones, which means when he looks at them, he sees things are ablaze, on fire. And he tries to describe them, and really, I have a hard time picturing this in my head. So he's saying this creature that you and I can't even imagine, it is covering its face, it's covering its feet, and all that it's saying back and forth, and when they talk to themselves, all that they say is holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. That's what the seraphim say. That is the dim glimpse of the glory of God. That is a dim glimpse as to his sovereignty. He rules and reigns not only on earth, but also over all of the heavenly hosts, all of the heavenly court, all of them are in subjection under God. And they don't see this as a bad thing. In fact, this is just one of the pictures. If you want to sometime this week, look at the other images of the throne room of God. You can look at Ezekiel chapter one, verses 26 and 28. And also Revelation chapter 4. Those are two other places that talk about a similar type of description of the throne of grace. So here we have the throne in its glory, in its full majesty and splendor. And we realize that no actual human representation of God's glory could even come close to the reality of who God is and what he is like. And then, so what does this mean for the implications of his reign? So these two pieces of evidence, his majesty and his strength, they establish that he rightfully deserves to reign. But what are some of the implications of that reign? If you look with me at the end of verse 1, the psalmist continues his, uh, his elaboration. He says, yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from old. You are from everlasting. So the poetic, uh, the poetic use of language here actually flows more specifically as the structure goes down. So when it says, yes, the world is established, and then after that it says, your throne is established, what he's saying is actually in the poetic structure that your throne is established, therefore the world is established. That the world would actually not be established without the throne of God being established. And the key word to help us understand that is when he says the world is established, and when he says your throne is established, he modifies it by saying from of old. Meaning that one of these two things came first. And the throne of God actually comes before the establishment of the world. That the establishment of the world is predicated on the establishment of the throne of God. So the throne of God is established, therefore the world is established. In Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2, we understand that he upholds the whole universe by the word of his power. In fact, Job, when Job has the opportunity to talk about how God sustains his creation, he says in Job 26.7, he says, He, being God, hangs the earth on nothing. That's how he describes the world in, in uh, all of ancient history. And what this is implying is that it is God who has put the earth in its place and who has hung the earth on nothing. And then here it says that the earth is established in its being hung on nothingness. So we have an interesting interplay here, and many people have tried to use this text and misunderstood this text to try to make like a geocentric model of the universe, saying that the earth is actually the center because it's established and that everything else roams around it. That's not what we're to understand. What he says here is not that the earth is physically established as the center of all things. What he's saying is that the earth is established in the sense that God preserves the earth as it is, and it won't be shaken because God is on the throne. So the earth is exactly livable because God said so. And the earth hangs exactly where it does in the universe because God said so. And the earth has an atmosphere because God said so. And the earth has creatures and land and water because God said so. And so we have here is a picture of God that shows us that God doesn't have to obey physics so much as physics have to obey what God says. That we don't have to take physics and try to understand God through the lens of science and reason, what we can put together as our tools. But we know that our tools are merely descriptors and vague glimpses as to the things that God, by his word, has decreed to be 
the way that they are. And he says, your throne is established, therefore the world is established. And then he continues that by saying, you are from everlasting. In Daniel chapter 4, verse 34, Nebuchadnezzar, who I mentioned earlier, remember he raised that golden image of himself. And at the end of that chapter, this is that same Nebuchadnezzar, and he says these words. He says, I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. Nebuchadnezzar was humbled by God through God showing his power to Nebuchadnezzar, and he repents of his old ways, and he says, I had to bless the name of the Most High because his dominion is an everlasting dominion. That's the same thing that Psalmist says here. He says, you are from everlasting. Your throne is established from old. That the throne of God is not something that after the world was created, the throne of God was a mere afterthought or a struggle for power and then he achieved it. The throne of God predates the world. The throne of God predates the universe. And his throne is not only predating the universe, but it will be around long after the universe, the universe seeks, uh, ceases to exist. In Psalm chapter 90, verse 2, we have the same exact idea being expressed by Moses. He says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Do you get the picture? God is outside of creation, outside of time. And all of those other things flow out of God and his lordship over all things. That God didn't create the world and then have to fight for control over it. That he spoke the earth and the universe and everything that was into existence. And because he spoke, those things exist. And he didn't have to struggle for power. In fact, he's never had to fight for anything because he sovereignly rules and reigns over all creation. What does it mean when it says that the world is established? We talked about this a moment ago uh, when I mentioned that people have misused this text. When it says that the world is established, again, it's not saying that the earth is the center of the universe and that everything else spins around it. What it's saying is things like morality don't change with time. Things like physics and science don't change with time. These are knowable things that we can find out. Things like objective truth about the world, about yourself, can be found because they're established. Things like the law, which is that governments, when they seek to employ a just society, they come up with a system of codes and legal documents to try to establish what it looks like to live in a just society. And we as Christians understand that the law is merely a reflection of the morality of God. That no government has perfectly done this, but all governments, when they try to enact a good code of conduct, that they are making an attempt to be like God in his goodness. Now, some governments decide that they disagree with God on a certain code or a certain morality. That doesn't change the objective truth of God's morality. It simply shows that man always falls short, falls short in their attempt to be like God. We know as Christians that the law is merely a shadow of God's goodness. In fact, Paul uses this same argument in Romans 13 to establish that all authority is given to those in power by God. That God is the one who establishes authorities. God is the one who establishes kings, and he can establish them and he can take them away. That behind the things that we see as the most powerful reigns a more sovereign God who is more powerful over those things. And we know that morality is established and true because in the very beginning, when God makes man, he stamps his image on man. We would call this the imaho day, that God puts his image into you and I. And all other morality, even today when the world makes vain attempts at morality, tries to capture and preserve the imaho day. It tries to capture the value of human life. And it goes all kinds of weird directions with how it tries to capture it, but everyone knows that there is something that is valuable about the human life. Everyone knows there is something that is dignified about a person. And people try to establish codes of conduct to dictate how you can't exert your own will over someone else. And why is that? Well, everyone would say that that's kind of a crazy question to ask. It's obvious why that is. But you have to push deeper because According to a secular worldview, you actually can't get to the value of a human. 
because we are simply the more evolved of the most evolved of the animals. And so our code is simply one that preserves our genetics and our bloodline for as long as possible. That is the secular ethic. The Christian ethic says that every human life matters, regardless of ability, regardless of age, regardless of gender, regardless of income level, regardless of nationality. Only the Christian worldview can make claims like that, though. And the reason is because every other worldview defaults to tribalism. Because according to the secular worldview, we are competing in this gigantic genetic race to preserve our DNA for as long as possible. And so it would make sense why people of like DNA and from like parts of the world would band together and fight against others, because that fits perfectly within the secular ethic. Because you're trying to preserve your DNA and your dominion and your rule and your tribe over the rest of the tribes. So it makes sense according to a secular worldview, but according to a Christian worldview, we can look at things like that and say that's insane. Because every human life matters. And because God put his image on a child before it was even born, that that life also matters. And when societies hated women and would abuse women, that the Christian looks at that, and Paul, when he writes a letter to husbands, he says, love your wives and submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. In a culture that said wives were simply there as a status symbol, and you could sleep with slaves, and you could sleep with whoever you wanted to, the wife was merely there. But Paul says, husbands, love your wife. Submit to her. And this is the Christian morality. Unchanging. And society today seems to be trying to say that Christians are out of date and we need to catch up. But the truth is, we've beaten them to the line. In fact, God's morality has always been there. And he is just waiting for us to get on page with him. In fact, he's revealed his morality in all kinds of different ways through his word. But we're going to get there later in this psalm. So we see that the Lord reigns. We see that he rules. And we see that his reign is an everlasting reign. His morality doesn't change. His law doesn't change. His decrees don't change. And so now in the second set of verses, verses 3 and 4, we're going to see not only how the Lord reigns eternally, but how the Lord reigns over the floods. It says in verse 3, that the floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods have lifted up their roaring. And then verse 4 continues this idea. It says, mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea. The Lord on high is mighty. So we start off with these three repeating statements. Anytime in scripture something is repeated three times, you should pay attention to it. It's trying to drive home emphasis. In fact, when we saw Isaiah's throne room, he says about God, holy, 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 which is like saying holy, holier, holiest is God almighty. And here, In this threefold repetition, it's trying to establish that these are not just some floods, that these are a vast description of all of the rebellion of mankind. That the floods have lifted up, O Lord, the floods have lifted up their voice, the floods have lifted up their roaring. You might be wondering, why the water reference? What is the deal with what's going on here? I don't really understand what the sea or the flood is supposed to signify. And in scripture, the water, really actually in Jewish times, the water represented something that was an uncontrollable force of chaos. If you might surprise you to know that the Jewish people were not a seafaring people. The, there, were, there was a group of people who they called the seafarers when they would encounter them in the promised land. But the Jewish people were a land-dwelling group. They were nomadic. They liked agrarian culture. They raised sheep. And sheep do not do well near the ocean. So you can imply the Jewish people also did not do well near the water. In fact, the water is a picture of uncontrollable, unknowable forces of darkness and chaos. In the Genesis account of the creation story, it says that God hovers over the waters of the deep and begins to assemble them into order. That his spirit hovers over the waters of the deep. That is the unknowable and the dark world. And God begins to establish order. In Isaiah 27.1, we see the picture of Leviathan, the sea serpent, It says it's the twisting dragon who the Lord will eventually cut down. And it's called the dragon of the sea. Which is to say that it is the dragon of evil. The dragon that is over chaos. And so here, the floods refer to human rebellion. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods have lifted up their roaring. That is, human rebellion is lifting up. 
it's lifting up its noise, and it's lifting up its roaring. Really, this could also be translated as its waves or the noise that its waves cause. So the floods lift up their voice and they lift up their roaring. Jeremiah 46, 17 kind of puts a, a note in this where it says, call the name of the Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and it describes him as the noisy one who lets the hour go by. That's probably a perfect description of what it means when the floods lift up their voice. It's nothing more than noise to God. It's nothing more than a vain attempt at rebellion. This is how the Lord describes those who rebel against him. In fact, in the early chapters of Psalm, Psalm chapter 2, it says that the Lord looks at all those who rebel on them, uh, rebel against him, and he laughs. In Psalm chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Why do the, nation the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth have set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. And in verse 4, it says, He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. So the Lord is not neutral to this rebellion of the people. The Lord recognizes that this rebellion happens, but he compares it to floods or waves, or in other words, things that can change very quickly. The floods will stir up and just as quickly they will die down. The floods lift up their voice. They can get loud and they can get noisy. And it says also that they can lift up their roaring, which is they can bring their waves down. But last week we learned that Jesus uh, and God, that they are rocks and they are refuges. And if you know anything about a rock against water, the rock is established and the water dashes itself against it, but the rock is unchanged and the water goes away. This is the picture that we have of the people, that they are like uh, a stormy sea, that they are like floods lifting up their voice against God, but they just as soon as they come and they raise themselves up, they die down and the rock remains unchanged. The Lord compares the rebellion of the people against God by this language. And the rebellion against God is not something that's new. In fact, the outcome of the rebellion isn't even uncertain either. We know in Scripture that the outcome of the rebellion of the people is fixed. We have Revelation, we have Ezekiel, we have Isaiah. They all talk about the outcome of that rebellion. Primarily today, we feel the rebellion of the people in our culture's moral ethic. In our Western society, we're done really rebelling against God and trying to build giant ziggurats like they did in Genesis 11. But our rebellion looks a little bit different. We try to challenge God on his moral ethic. We try to challenge God on, is that really the best design for human flourishing? We try to challenge God on, does it really mean that there are only two genders that exist? Is that really a good thing? Is it a good thing that we believe in husbands and wives being married to each other, and that they remain loyal and monogamous. Is that a good thing? Is it actually a good thing to have children from your marriage relationship? Our culture is challenging all kinds of Christian morality. But the reality is that it's not just culture vaguely rebelling against God. You and I are rebels against God. In fact, before Christ, we were all in outright rebellion against him whether that be by our religious works, trying to clothe ourselves in our own majesty and bring it to God and say, look, I did what you did, let me in. Or whether it was us looking at God's law, rejecting it and saying that is unfitting, I'm going to do it my own way, I don't care about you, God. We are all in the category of rebels. We try to do sex our own way, we try to do money our own way, we try to do marriage our own way, and all of it is a vain attempt at rebellion. For those who continue in that rebellion, again, the outcome is certain. The rebellion does not succeed. And we know this because in verse 4 of this text, it says, Mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. That's another threefold repetition of a term. So we have the floods, the floods, the floods, and it says, Mightier than the floods, mightier than the floods, mightiest over all the floods is God. This is a threefold repetition. So he's louder than the noise, he's stronger than the waves. But really to get the picture here, we need to turn to Mark chapter 4, verse 35. I'm sure you've heard this story before. If you've been in church for any length of time, you probably grew up hearing about this story. Mark chapter 4 and verse 35 
I find this tremendously helpful for understanding how exactly it is that God rules and reigns over the rebels. In verse 35, it starts like this. It says, On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, that's Jesus, he says, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in a boat, just as he was. And other boats were with them. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with a great fear, and they say to one another, Who then is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? Well, if they would have known about Psalm chapter uh, Psalm 93, they would know what is the implication of this story. In fact, Alistair Begg is uh, one of my favorite uh, pastors today, and one of the things that he talks about is how a problem with an interpretation of Scripture is when we moralize a text or we spiritualize a text. And how you might have grown up with this text being preached is that Jesus calmed the Sea of Galilee and he can calm the storm in your life and in my life as well. And, I mean, that might be true, but that's just not what this text is talking about. What this text is talking about is that Jesus sovereignly reigns over all creation. When he speaks, just like when God speaks in the beginning of Genesis, all of the earth bends itself to figure out how they're going to obey what he just said. And here Jesus speaks to the storm. And we can understand how storms are produced, right? Difference in temperature, over the water, and we can put together by a meteorologist standpoint how this storm would have scientifically formed. But what you can't explain is how when Jesus speaks by his words, that interacts with the physics and calms the storm, not over the next two hours or over the next 20 minutes it dies down, but immediately the wind stops and the waters go still. Immediately. This is natural creation bending to the will of its sovereign ruler. This is Jesus reigning over the depiction of a Jewish symbol of chaos. And Jesus, when he does this, the disciples take note. And they turn to one another and they, they take note of this and they say, who is this that even the wind and the sea obeys him? And the implication is, ought not we to obey him as faithfully as the wind and the sea does? Mark chapter 4 is a story about a sovereign, ruling creator. And it's recorded there so we don't mistake in Jesus as another prophet. So we don't mistake in him as an ethic teacher. So we don't mistake in him as the first iteration of many who are to come, like Confucius and Buddha and Muhammad, who come around trying to teach a similar kind of moral ethic. Jesus is morally righteous, but he's not a moral or an ethical teacher. He is a savior over creation. And he proves that by ruling and reigning sovereignly first here, and then he raises Lazarus from the grave. And he walks on water as well. And ultimately when he dies, he comes back to life. To prove that natural laws have no binding on him. Because he is God. And there is none like him. Jesus eventually triumphs over all his enemies. And this story records exactly how he will do that. By simply speaking... And as Revelation says, from his mouth comes a sword. And that is the sword in which he judges over all the earth. That when he comes on his white horse, the sword and its rider, the sword comes from the mouth of the rider. And here Jesus, when he speaks, the waters obey. And the conclusion there is that I said before the outcome of the rebellion is certain. Look to Mark 4. The rebellion is squashed immediately, as soon as the maker would have it so. We know this. We're told it. How do you respond? When you know that you're in rebellion against God, how do you respond? Satan still thinks he has a fighting chance. Apparently, he doesn't read Scripture too well because by the end of Revelation, he knows how that's going to go. 
And he knows that he's a created being and this is God. But somehow, he still thinks that although he's in rebellion, he can, in the end of the days, win. And you and I are foolishly much the same. We look at the revealed morality of God, and when we respond, what we try to do is fabricate our own morality to compete with his. Or we look at his morality and we reject it and say we're going to try it our own way. How do you respond? Do you find yourself in submission to God when his morality bumps into yours? Or do you find yourself trying to exert your dominance and saying, you know, you were right about a lot of things, Jesus, but this one you missed the mark. So I'm going to go with what modern wisdom would tell me is right. How do you respond? When the seas rise up, are you with the seas in their rebellion? Or do you prefer to stand on the rock which outlasts the sea? And so we've talked about how the Lord reigns forever and how he's mightier even than all of the rebellion of the waters and the nations when they rise up against him. He's more mighty than all those things. And then verse 5 of this psalm captures, I think, one of the most important points in the text, which is exactly how God reigns. God reigns through his word. That is, through his scriptures that he has left for us. If it's true that God reigns eternally, and it's true that he reigns over all the rebellious peoples, then how can we be sure that we're in alignment with him or in disalignment with him in our lives? How do we know if it's not through his very commandments that we judge our morality? It says in verse 5 that your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house. O Lord, forevermore. It says your decrees are very trustworthy. I just want to zone in on that for a second. It says your decrees, your statutes, your words, God, are very trustworthy. How do we know what God's words are? Psalm 119 affirms that God's words are righteous and they're trustworthy. Psalm 119, 137 says, Righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. So we know that these decrees are trustworthy, but again, how do we know what the decrees are? People typically don't have a problem with a God who's ruling and who's sovereign as long as he doesn't have rules that are particularly knowable. Because then we can still live our lives however we want to. If we believe in a sovereign God and we believe in a powerful God and we believe in a savior God who loves us and we'd like to follow his commandments, but we're just not sure exactly what they are. So what happens with people like that is the morality of God tends to change and reflect exactly what culture is thinking at the moment. It might be a little bit ahead of or a little bit behind of the cultural ethic, but as long as it's keeping pace in the direction culture's going, you can pretty well be sure that's probably not a faithful reflection of God's morality. Because we said before that he rules eternally, that he's sovereign, And so it would lead us to believe that his rules don't change either. Which means that whatever he decreed for the Jewish people, he would expect of you and I as well. And we're not going to have time right now to get into things like inerrancy or infallibility of Scripture. If you want to get into all that, I'm more than happy to. I love those topics. But I want to ask you a simple question, which actually comes from R.C. Sproul. He says it this way. He says, if we claim that Jesus is Lord... How does he exercise his lordship over our life? How does he exercise his decrees over your and my life? How do we know what God wants from us? If we claim for him to be Lord, what we're affirming is that he does reign. And the question is, in what what is the vehicle of him reigning over your life? You could choose a particular body of faith to belong to. You could say that that is the ultimate vehicle for God's decreed word. And that's fair, except that we know that those bodies can go astray. You can declare society's current morality to be, you know, the way God declares his lordship and that we should just follow that. But you know that society changes and society progresses at a rapid pace. And so how does he exercise his lordship? I just want to submit this as factual And again, we won't be able to get into inerrancy and infallibility, but I would say that the Lord reigns through his word, as the psalm says here. It says, 
your decrees are very trustworthy. The decrees, you can find them all over Scripture. You can find them in the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. You can find them in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 through Matthew chapter 7. You can find them in the teachings on marriage that God has for us in Ephesians. You can find them in his just and glorious punishment of sin, how he is righteous in his wrath against sinners. You can find them in Jesus' parables on money. All of these are manifestations of how he exercises his commandments, how he lets us know what's going on, how we ought to live, how we ought to obey. And the first question we tend to ask is if we hear something we disagree with, the first thing we ask is, does Scripture actually say that? Is Scripture true on this issue? Couldn't that just have been a relic of, you know, a Hebrew identification of morality or a Greek identification of morality? You know, isn't Paul rather regressive in his treatment of women and the family? And to quote a, an old Puritan, if you only believe the parts of the Bible that you agree with, it's not the Bible you believe, but it's yourself. If you say that you believe the Bible, then you have to believe all of the Bible. The parts you like and the parts that rub you the wrong way. The parts you get along with because they seem to be, you know, the good things of God. And then the parts that you look at and you're, you're scratching your head and you're going, I don't know how that makes sense. How can God be good and wrathful? How can he be just and merciful? How could a God who rules and reigns over all his creation and loves people and has no desire for people to perish still come back in Revelation 19 judging the living and the dead and separating the wheat from the tares? How can he do that? Well, we wrestle with those things as believers because we know that it is the word of God. And so whether or not we can wrap our heads around it at first, what we do is we humbly submit ourselves and say, just like we read in the meditation this morning, that his ways are above our ways and his thoughts aren't our thoughts. And so we submit that our thoughts are inferior and we submit to his word. And we wrestle with the parts of scripture we struggle with. And we, we, we roam over them and we pray over them and we ask for insight and for clarification. But let it be known that if you're reading scripture for any length of time, you're going to bump into something that you disagree with. Or you're going to bump into something that really makes life inconvenient for you. And really makes it a lot harder to live your life as you thought was best to live it. But that's probably a good indication that it's God's law that you're following and not your own. It's probably a good indication that you're not just following the parts of the Bible you agree with. And so that brings us to the last point, which is if we know that God is trustworthy, his word is trustworthy, we ultimately know that holiness is something that is befitting of God. God says in Leviticus 19 verse 2, be holy as I am holy. He says the people of God need to be marked with holiness in our sexuality, in our morality, in our purity, in our self-control. And we need to purge away impurity from our hearts and from our ranks. And in Revelation chapter Five, we read that the bride of Christ has to purify herself for the day of her marriage to the Lamb. And we are ultimately being made ready for one day when Jesus returns. We know that we love God. We know that we have to love his word. And we know that we have to also love his law, which is contained in his word. John 14, 15 says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So as a church, we need to be set apart. As a people who belongs to God, we need to be set apart from the world. And we need to recognize that the world will hate us if we belong to God. And ultimately, this month, we have an excellent opportunity to do just that. We have an excellent opportunity to show how we are different from culture and what it believes on morality, what it believes on sexuality. But ultimately, I said that all of us are rebels against God. In Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 24, it says, you, referring to the people of Israel, you have been rebellious against the Lord since the day I knew you. That's Moses referring to the Israelites. In Romans chapter 8, we learn that, that not only are we in rebellion against God, but also that we can't undo our own rebellion. The mind that is set against God is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law because indeed it cannot. So, how are we supposed to respond to our rebellion against God? If we can't change ourselves, how can we rightly respond 
when we recognize our sinfulness. Well, Ezekiel 36.26 says it this way. It says, And I, that's God, I will give you a new heart. And I will pour my spirit within you and I will write my law on your heart. So it's not just an external manifestation of my morality, but you actually love it from your heart. And I will remove your heart of stone and I will put in you a heart of flesh that is sensitive to my ways and that breaks when my heart breaks and that loves the things that I love and longs for justice how I long for justice and longs for holiness how I long for holiness. And again, you can look this up later this week. In Ephesians chapter 2, he talks about how we are set free in our rebellion against God. That we are set, set, our bonds are broken against the prince of the power of the air who we once served. We are, bondage, we are in bondage to sin, following the prince of the power of the air, slaves to disobedience, dead in our trespasses and sins. And God makes us alive together with Christ. And that is how our rebellion stops. Is that we are made alive and we recognize our rebellious ways. And we repent and we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And we cry out to him to save us. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you that you are unchanging from everlasting to everlasting, that you have ruled and reigned faithfully for all time. And Lord, in a world that changes and shifts with an advancement in science or with an advancement in society or with the next big thing. Lord, we are thankful that your ways are sure and your words are steadfast and enduring and that we can hold on to those things as moments of clarity, as moments of righteousness, as moments that we can look to and we can hold on to when the storms rage and the people rebel and we can look around and say that this world hates us. And yet we are holding on to you, the, the firm rock, the, the foundation that will never be shaken, the fortress that we can always find refuge in. And Lord, we can find that through your word. And Lord, I pray that we would learn to love your word, that we would study it, that we would chew on it. And Lord, ultimately that we would bring ourselves in submission to it. And Lord, I pray all these things in your name. Amen.